dismissed. And before we dive into 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, Corey, thanks for reading that. A couple of notes. Um, Andrew gave a bunch of announcements. There is a little folder here at the back. Grab one if you want. There's some information there on that stuff. And uh, um, I, hope, I hope everyone knows that all the things that we've, we've been announcing, everybody's welcome to them, okay? There's nothing, it's not just one side or the other. So both churches, you're welcome to join us. Uh, the camping trip, um, I know camping's not for everybody, but I hope the sun's out that Sunday and I hope we can all come and bring a picnic and just hang out and enjoy each other. And then one other thing I forgot to mention to Andrew, um, because we've got two churches here, we've got two offering boxes, and so we don't often talk about money around here, but you know, pick the one you want, you want to and throw your money in there, okay? I think the information's back there. Um, um, it's important to keep the light bills, the lights paid for, right? And so just thought we'd highlight that. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, 3 through 12. Kind of an aside before I dive in. I've been wrestling with what does it mean to be well, there's been a few of us have been doing that. What does it mean to be a mature disciple of Jesus? And then, and then even a bigger question, what does it mean to be a healthy church? What does that look like? And, and so in, in that process, I've been personally walking through Revelation 2 and 3, where Jesus walks among the lampstands, so he's with us, and, and he commands some things, so he says, you're doing this well. He commends them on stuff, but then he rebukes on certain things. and says, you're not doing this well. And I think in his, in his uh, commending and his rebukes, a couple of things come to, come to the forefront. One is Jesus owns a church. I, I don't own the church. And when I'm talking church, I'm not talking the building we're in. This is a building that we get to gather in. When the Bible talks about the church, he talks about people, the people of God. I don't own the church, and our different denominations don't own the church. Jesus owns the church. We belong to Jesus. He's, he's our king. He's our boss. He's our master. And, and it's important to go, okay, well, what does he think is good and what doesn't he think is good? And, and I've been kind of pausing on the church in Ephesus. They were a church that had good doctrine, good sound teaching. Jesus commends them for that. Not all the churches. Some of the churches he doesn't command. Their, their doctrine just, quite frankly, their teaching stinks. He doesn't say it that way. He says it's actually harsher. But he commends the church in Ephesus for their right teaching, but he... He goes after them, if you remember, they have left their first love. And, I, and I've, I've been wondering, if, if people walked into our church, just first time ever, would they say, these people love Jesus? Could they see that? Then, then my question is, if they hung out with me for a day, would they say, Elroy loves Jesus? Now, if I love Jesus, it's going to also overflow. I'm going to love others, and it's going to be evident how I self, 
give myself away. But would they say that? And, and, and when I think of what do I hope our church, our churches will be known for, I, think, I pray that one of the things we'd be known for is that we would be a people who we love Jesus. Now, I, 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 I don't know what that all looks like, but um, when Lynn and I were dating and then we had to go because we were from different parts of the world and school was finished and we headed in our different directions, um, the guys I worked with, they heard about Lynn. I talked about her. I loved her. And I wanted them to know about her. And so, I mean, that, I think that's one part of it. Like, do we, does it bubble over, our love for Jesus? And, I'm, and my prayer is, and I think Paul, as he's going through this, he's praying that their love would abound and increase. It's a love for one another. But uh, according to Ephesians, I think it should be, ought to be a love for each other. Now, that's a rabbit trail but it's a, I'm praying that God would do that among us and, and, and in us and through us. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. In the series on prayer, praying like Jesus and praying like Paul, uh, my hope is to actually look at how th- they prayed and go, okay, Lord, uh, this is how you taught us to pray. This is how Paul prayed. Um, can we learn from this? And how should our prayer life change in light of that? And as we looked at Jesus' prayer in Matthew and then Paul's prayer last week in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, uh, I don't know about you, but I was challenged on not only in their consistency in prayer, but in what we should pri- prioritize in the content of our prayer. And I think this week's passage is no different. In this week's uh, passage, uh, the prayer in 2 Thessalonians is actually found in verse 11. We read a bunch of stuff, but... Verse 11 is the actual prayer. But the surrounding context is really important. And so what I want you to notice is that in verses 3 through 10, you have Paul's perspective that fuels his prayer. Okay? So verses 3 through 10, you have this perspective that Paul has, this attitude Paul has, that literally, I think, puts a fire under and and makes his prayers happen. Then in verse 12... The last verse that Corey read for us is Paul's goal or his purpose in praying. And then in verse 11, you actually have the content of his prayer. And and what I'd like to do this morning is start with the content. Let's, Let's take a look at verse 11, and then we'll unpack the stuff around it, okay? So the content of Paul's prayer in verse 11. Notice what Paul says, To this end we always pray for you. Now, we noticed that last week, always. Uh, I don't think Paul is saying that every time he's, like literally 24-7, he's praying for the church in Thessalonica. But what he is saying is there's a habit in his prayers. There's a consistency in his prayer. And last week we talked about how he he took uh, the names of the Thessalonians and he and Silas and Timothy together lifted up those names to the Lord and actually mentioned their names and prayed for them specifically. And so when I, I mean, I was challenged in that. Okay, so how do I pray for you? How do I pray for the people I love? Do I lift their names up? Do I actually mention your names in the context of the Lord and pray specifically for you? 
question is, what do we do? But Paul's prayer, he says always, and, and again, uh, there's a consistency, a regularness, a, a habit in his prayer life. My question for us is, what's your plan to pray? Let's carry on. Notice the content of his prayer. He says, we always pray for you that, this is what he's praying, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. I see two things there he's praying for. One, he says, I'm praying that God would make you worthy of his calling. What does he mean by that? Galatians chapter 1. If you want, you can turn there. Um, verses uh Galatians chapter 1, verses 13 through 15, you've got Paul thinking back to his calling. So Paul says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. So this is Paul. Before he's converted, he was killing Christians. Verse 14, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Verse 15. But when he who had set me before, apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. He's talking about the road to Damascus when he's walking on the road to Damascus and this great light shines down. He's struck, he's blind, he falls to the ground. He hears a voice and Jesus reveals himself, takes the veil off and says, here I am, you're persecuting me and I'm calling you to myself. That's Paul's conversion, that's Paul's calling. God, Jesus was calling him. Even though he was called, he was chosen or set apart before he was born there was a moment on the road to damascus where god the father god the son calls him so when paul's talking about he he says in in uh praise for them i always pray for you that the god may make you worthy of his calling he's talking about the thessalonians when christ called them open their eyes to see who Jesus is and their need for Jesus, and they turn to Jesus. So what does he mean when he says, I'm praying that God would make you worthy of his calling? Is he, is he saying you need to earn it? Ephesians, Paul says something I think that's helpful. In Ephesians chapter 4, you don't have to turn there, you can listen. Ephesians 4 verse 1 I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, this is Paul again, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Literally what Paul says, I'm praying that you would, that you, you've been called, you don't, didn't deserve this, God opened your eyes, removed the veil, allowed you to see Jesus and your need for Jesus, and, and now, he says, I'm going to pray that you would grow and become worthy of that, you would grow in likeness of that calling, so that you will grow in your humility and your gentleness and your patience. Isn't that how he prayed last time? First Thessalonians, probably written a few months earlier. He says, I'm praying that your 
that your love would increase and abound more and more for one another. Really, he's saying, I'm praying that you will, this is how he prays. This is how Paul prays. And he's thinking not of a building, and he's not thinking of an organization. He's thinking of people in Thessalonica that he's had meals with, that he's, he's rubbed shoulders with, that he's, he's grown to love. And he's saying, I'm praying for you, and I'm praying for you, and, and I'm praying for you, and I'm praying that you would grow in such a way that your life would be worthy of that. Grow in holiness, love, faith, obedience, fruit of the Spirit. He's saying, Lord, would you do this in, in, in their lives? Now, Paul doesn't stop there. The second thing Paul prays for, he prays that their purposes or their goals, did you notice that, the Second Thessalonians um, chapter 1, verse 11? That he may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. So your goals that are spurred on by your faith in, and trust in Jesus, he's saying, I'm praying that they would actually flourish, that they would actually occur. Well, that assumes a couple of things. It assumes that you have goals that are connected because of your trust in Jesus. Hopefully, as the people of God, we don't just simply have goals of how much money we're going to set aside for retirement, but that we have goals that are very practical. How am I going to love my neighbor? Uh, how am I going to encourage the person in the context of my church family that needs encouragement? Maybe goals for today, goals for this week, goals for the, the, for the coming year. And those goals, those goals are, are set aside. The reason I want to love my neighbor is because Jesus loved me. I have a trust in Jesus and I want to love my neighbor. My neighbor needs to hear about Jesus. My neighbor needs to see the, 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 the love of Jesus displayed. The Apostle Paul says, I'm praying that every one of those faith-fueled goals would flourish among you. Now, that's how Paul prays. Now, did you notice in verse, what is it, verse uh, 6? He talks about, uh, verse 5 actually, and verse 6, he talks about their suffering and their affliction, and, and it seems like they are being persecuted Still, they were last week, about six months, maybe a year earlier, in the last letter that was written. They're being persecuted for their faith in Christ. And so now Paul is praying for them, and if what's, what strikes me is he doesn't say, he doesn't pray, Lord, would you get them out of this predicament of suffering? This week, we, uh, as a family, received some really, really good news. Um, um, on Tuesday, we went to the oncologist, and so every three months, Lynn has her, her cancer appointments and has her tests, and, and so this Tuesday, we got to go in, and the doctor walks in and gives us the thumbs up. In other words, the cancer's still there, but it's not growing, it's not active, and we're very grateful. And then he said, no, no more tests for six months. First time ever. So this, they're extending that. And they told us, they told us um, well, he told us that uh, they're going to minimize or, or lower her dosage of the medication she's on. And so we're just like, yes, thank you, Jesus. And, and of course, 
uh, you're anticipating, you're anxious through the whole process. You, the whole week before, you're kind of like wonder what the results are going to be, and you're nervous, and you're praying, and you know that God's in charge, but you're, you're still worried, and, and, and all of those pieces. And so when the doctor walks in and gives a thumbs up, Lynn cries, and I want to. That's how we work. But it was a cry of tears. I have prayed much for Lynn's health. And I think that's good and right. And after we got that report, I have prayed much and said, Lord, thank you for her ongoing health. And I think that's good and right. In fact, we're told in James, uh, we, when someone's sick, we're to, to call the elders to pray. So we're called to do that. But what strikes me about Paul's prayer is that sometimes I think I, I don't pray enough for what really matters. What really matters is that Lynn grows in being worthy of the calling that the Lord has called her to, that she grows in holiness, that she grows in love, that she grows in joy, that she grows in faith, that she grows in those things that are of eternal significance. I mean, even if God removes the cancer and says, Lynn, I'm going to you, let you live a ripe old age. What's that, another... 30, 40, 50 years maybe? But the things that Paul prays for when he's talking to the church in Thessalonica, it's not the things that are, are, are just their, their survival down here. I'm sure he's praying about their, their uh, persecution, but I think he's praying for what, the things that are ultimate. And it's really challenged me, how do I pray for Lynn? How do I pray for my children? Do, do I just pray that they get good jobs, that they work hard, that, uh, you know, is that, is that the focus of my prayer? The priority of my prayer for them and for you should be not that you just get a good job, but that you grow in holiness, that you grow in... That's how Paul prays. That's how Paul teaches us how to pray. I think that's how Jesus teaches us how to pray. Now, I challenge you this morning, as you read this book, don't let it just be a mirror and then you walk away and you forget what you just read. He's challenging us to, to change the way we pray. Now, to help us, I think the context is actually quite helpful. Look at verse 12 where Paul gives us his goal or the purpose, the purpose of his prayers. Verse 12, he says, so that he's praying this way, verse 12, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. He said, I'm praying this way so that when others look at you, the church in Thessalonica, they're not going to see you, they're going to see Jesus. And Jesus will be honored. So what if the church in Thessalonica grows in their love for one another? Jesus says, they will know you are my disciples. That's what he says elsewhere. What if the, the church in Thessalonica continues to grow in their faith, and that's evident by the way they persevere even though they're persecuted? 
They continue to trust God and believe God even when everybody's against them. The world's going to look at it and they're going to go, man, those people are something. But they're going to look beyond that. They're actually going to say, look at Jesus who gives them the power to do that. The Apostle Paul prays to this end because he wants Jesus' name to be lifted up, to be honored. Now, he doesn't stop there. He goes on and he says, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. Huh? And you in him. What's he saying there? In Romans, Romans chapter 8, Verses 17 and 18, listen to these words. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. We suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. He's telling the Thessalonians, you guys are suffering, and I'm praying that you will suffer with him, but then, then you will be glorified. Something in this suffering shapes them and molds them so that they become like Christ. Or 2 Corinthians says it a little differently. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Listen to these words. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is a spirit. So we become, as we become like Jesus, there's a sense where we also will be glorified. This is why Paul prays. This is his goal. He wants Jesus' name to be lifted up, and he wants the people of God to look in such a way that they look like Jesus. That's why he prays this way. That's why he's not simply praying for his second cousin twice removed by, and, and that, that, that he doesn't know that, that is having a surgery on something. He prays that way, I'm sure. But that's not the only thing of the content of his prayer. The content of his prayer is, Lord, would you grow them? Would you shape them to be look like you? And may they look like you so that, that you, God, are honored, that, you, that the world sees that, that you are in charge. You know, as I've been thinking about who we are as a church, are we a church, a people of God, when somebody walks in, they go, they love Jesus. They love each other. Oh, my goodness, I, I like this bunch. That's attractive. And quite frankly, I don't think I am there or we are there. I think we need to pray for each other that we would grow, in a, we would increase and abound in our love for one another and for all. And if that happens, if God does that in us, oh, Jesus will be glorified. He will be honored. I told you that we'll look at the content of Paul's prayer in 2 Thessalonians and we will look at the goal of his prayer in 2 Thessalonians 1, but we also need to understand the perspective of Paul that fuels his prayer life. 
And we find that in verses 3 through 10. He says in verse, actually in verse 11, so that, uh, verse 11, to this end, the ESV says, if you have an NIV in front of you, it says, with this in mind. So what Paul is saying, with what I've said in verses 3 through 10, with that in mind, this is how I pray. This is why I pray. This is what I pray. With these things in mind. What are those things? One, he has a thankful perspective. He has a thankful perspective when he thinks about the Thessalonians. Look at verse uh, 3. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you. This is right. And why, why is he thanking God? Because your faith is growing abundantly. Now, this is how Paul prayed in 1 Thessalonians. He thanked them because he says, it's evident that your faith is growing. Your trust in God is growing. And he says, I'm thankful for that. If you're praying for somebody and you see their faith in God grow that much, thank God. God gets the glory for that. You didn't do that, they didn't do that, God did that. That's Paul's perspective. He thanks God. God, you did this. Not only, did th- not only that, but he says, um, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. He's, re- he's received more news from that church, and, and he's astounded how they're still loving one another, and that love is growing. I don't know what he heard that helped him see that their love for one another was growing, but it was, it's, it's something he heard made it obvious that they were growing in their love for each other. And Paul's incredibly thankful for that. He's thankful for their steadfastness, even though they're enduring persecution. You might remember last week, I said that the the city of Thessalonica was a privileged city in the Roman Empire. And as a privileged city in the Roman Empire, they had to make sure that, yes, they could worship whatever God they wanted, but they had to call Jesus, I mean, they had to call Caesar Lord, or Caesar King, or Caesar Master. So you could do all of this, but you had to say this. But what were the Christians doing? Acts chapter 17. The Christians were saying, Jesus is Lord. And that was getting some prominent people and some slaves in trouble. That's likely what was bringing them into conflict with the Roman Empire. They loved Jesus so much that they would continue to say, Jesus is Lord, even though that got them in trouble. They persevered in their faith. And Paul says, I thank God that these things are happening and that you're growing in that and you're continuing in that. So Paul has a thankful perspective, but what he gives thanks for tells us what he loves. Like, pause for a minute. First off, if you're not thankful, you're in trouble. We're called to give thanks in all circumstances. We're we're called to, to... to give thanks to the God who created us, Romans chapter 1. And when we don't do that, we begin to worship something else. So that's why we gather around a table and we thank God for the food in front of us. That's why we should pause every once in a while and thank God for, for your children, your spouse, your friends, your, your, your job, the things that he's, he's given you. But if we just stop at those things, 
then our focus is really on the stuff down here. Paul is grateful for those things that have eternal weight. In 1 Thessalonians, you see he's grateful that their faith, their trust in Jesus is growing. He, he's thankful that their love for one another is increasing. He's, he's actually boasting to others that hey, look how steadfast they are. That's what Paul values, and that's what, so that's what he thanks God for. Consider how you pray. Does it look like this? Now that gratitude, there's not only that sense, but there's not only a thankful sense that, or perspective that Paul has, but Paul has this uh, eternal perspective in verses 5 through 10. And this is a hard passage, let's be honest. Verse 5, this is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also are suffering. What's he talking about there? Their steadfastness in the context of persecution is evidence, Paul says, of the righteous judgment of God. What, what's going on there? What does he mean? I think it's something simple, something as simple as this. He says, uh, the suffering that has come your way is producing things in your life that are good. A steadfastness character, Christ-likeness. And quite frankly, um, the righteous judge, um, judgment according to Peter, starts with the house of God. He begins to shape us. He begins to discipline us so that we look like Christ. But it, his discipline on us is, is an act of kindness and love and grace. And so Paul says the fact that you're going through suffering is actually just is an evidence that this righteous judge is actually involved and engaged in your life. And he's considered you worthy of the kingdom of God. For which you are also suffering. Isn't that why James tells us we're to consider it pure joy or all joy when we go through all kinds of trials? <laughs> I don't always like that. But I need to hear that. The church in Thessalonica needed to hear that. But he doesn't stop there. He, he actually he gives, he, he gives an, an expectation of God's kingdom, but there's also this sobering expectation of hell. And it's strong. Verses 6, Since indeed God considers it just to repay your, with affliction those who afflict you. Verse 7, And to gr grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, he says, yet God will grant you guys relief on, on that last day. But those who are afflicting you, he's going to afflict them. It gets stronger in verse 8. 
these mighty angels are coming with Jesus. They're going to come in flaming fire, inflicting in vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints. Those are harsh words. I would like to just jump over them and pretend they're not there, but I can't because these words actually fuel Paul's prayers. And if we believe these things, they will fuel ours. There is nowhere in Scripture, there is nowhere in the words of Jesus where it says that, there, that all people will someday be in the presence of God. That all people will receive the heaven or receive the kingdom of God. There, Jesus, doesn't, Jesus talks about hell more than he talks about heaven. And, and Paul describes it like a flaming fire. He describes it as um, eternal destruction. He describes it as being away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory, the beauty the, of his might. And who is that for? For those who afflict these people, and it's for those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, who do not respond to the good news of Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but I've got family members that I love deeply who have rejected the gospel, and it's evident by their lack of obedience to the things of the Lord. And when I read this, I think of them. I don't know about you, but I've got people I've worked with or, or I live next to. The fit in this category. And it shouldn't cause me to rejoice. It, it should put a tear in my eye. Now, I didn't write this. If I wrote the Bible, I would have written it differently. There were things I would take out, stuff like this. But God wrote the book. And we have to be very clear. Are we prepared to meet him? Are we a people who know him? Are we a people that are growing and increasing in this love and in this faith and in this steadfastness? Or are we a people who aren't? The Apostle Paul, I think with this thankful perspective and this eternal perspective, cannot help but pray for this church that they would grow and, and grow and increase and become more and more like Jesus Christ. And that their, their works would, would their, their works that are coming out of their faith in Christ would only grow and flourish. And like that's how he's praying. Because he knows that there's an eternal stakes. And that's why he prays like he prays. That's what motivates him. That's why he's not so concerned about their suffering. He's more concerned about their love. 
That's why he's not so concerned about their suffering. He's more concerned about their trust in God. That's why he's not so concerned. Not, not in, I'm not saying this flippantly. He's not so concerned about their pain and their suffering. But he's con- concerned that they're steadfast in their trust and their obedience to God. And that's how he prays. And that's how we should pray. That's how we should pray. You know, as I look at this, at this, there's this picture of God's incredible grace in this passage because he's called these people. But you also have this picture of God's incredible righteousness and justice in this passage because he's going to punish some. And it's with that and with the Lord's table in mind this morning, I, I would like us to just pause and consider Romans chapter 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested or revealed apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What's he saying there? Jesus comes to this earth And he willingly goes to the cross. And that action on the cross where he is nailed to that tree and there dies an excruciating, painful death, he does that out of love for you and me. That's his grace. He bore, according to that word propitiation, he bore God's wrath, God's judgment. God's judgment for our sins came upon Jesus and he wore it. He took it. And so on that cross I see his love and I see his grace and I, I see his kindness and I, I see his mercy. I, I see all of those things. And he welcomes us and he says, trust in me. Trust in my work. Now that will be evident in the way we love one another and that will be evident in the way we trust him and, and how we say steadfast. But On that cross, we see his love. But on that same cross, we also see his holiness and his justice. You see, God just doesn't let us, anybody, wander into heaven, wander into the presence of God, because God is a holy God. God is a just God. God is a righteous God. We would, we would scream a foul if the, if, 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 if the judge in, in our land would, would let uh, um, pedophiles go, go scot free. And when they get off with a lighter sentence and we think, we shout and we scream because we think it's a terrible thing. We would think the same thing if, if God would let off the hook those who are sinful. The problem is God says we are all sinful. None of us. And for those who don't put their trust and their faith in this God who hung, showed his love by hanging on a tree, 
Paul's very clear that their eternity is not so pretty. Because instead of Christ bearing that wrath, they will bear it for all eternity. And that's what motivates Paul to pray. And that's how he prays for the church. And that's how we should be praying for each other. Grant your, your grandchildren, that's how you should be praying for them. It's great if they have a it's great if it's it's great if they have a good job and they eventually have a great home and a nice car and a nice family, but if they don't know Jesus That's how you pray, should pray for your brother or your sister or your parents. That's how we should pray for our neighbor. That's how we should pray for those we work alongside. That, that should be our conviction. And that's how we should pray for each other, that we would grow in our love, grow in our faith, and grow in our steadfastness. Because as we grow in those things, it becomes evident that, that we actually truly do trust in this Jesus. Let me pray. Lord, we had a mouthful of stuff this morning. I ask that you graciously help us to see a few things and that we can change when it comes to our prayer life. But Lord, would you teach us to pray and pray in such a way that we pray like Paul. What matters to Paul matters to us. And those things would be more important to us than the things of this world. And Father, I pray for the ones that we love, that we care for, that uh, have turned their back on you. I pray, Father, that you'd use us in some way, not only to pray for them, but, Lord, to share the good news with them. That you draw them to yourself. Lord, we ask these things not because we deserve them, Lord, I pray that we desire them deeply. We ask these things because you're kind and you're good and, and you're able to provide. So in the name of Jesus, we pray. Teach us to pray. Amen. Every Sunday we gather around the table because if you're like me, I need to be reminded That Jesus hung on that cross for me. It was his love, his kindness, his grace that, that did this for me. His body was nailed to a tree. His blood shed on my behalf and on our, ours. And so we need, we need to stop and remember this day, week after week. Say, thank you, Jesus. But I pray that as we gather around the table, we'll also begin to pray for others. who need to grow in their love for Jesus and their love for one another. But also... Maybe some who need to know him. Andrew, could you come and help me and join me? If you're a follower of Jesus, if uh, Jesus, there's been a time in your life where he's called you and you've responded to that call by repentance, you're welcome to join us around the table. Um, two sides, we've learned, and uh, we, we'd like to do it together, not alone, so bring somebody with you. Please.